Insomnia. Don't lose sleep over it. The prevalence of insomnia warrants some attention. How much? That is the kicker. Unlike such activities as exercising or cancer research, where more seems to reap more, such zeal in addressing disordered sleep may prove less fruitful. Many of our ableist physicians will smile knowingly at that odd ache or skin discoloration, shake their heads slightly and provide some reassurance that your case is not dire. A bit of empathy is usefully thrown in. These are what is known as nonspecific healing factors. They mostly add up to clinical attention. Are you that guy whose headache turns out to be a tumor? Doubtful. If the doctor thoroughly examined and addressed every last pain and irregularity, she would see one patient a day. Doctors who handle these nonspecific healing factors well are considered to have good bedside manners. Addressing sleep problems is a tricky issue. Virtually all disorders of the mind and body are first signal, signaled by a disruption in sleep. It must be noted. It must be taken seriously. It must be attended to. Ah, yes, attended to. How much is the right amount of attention? Is your sleep disturbance the one that would confound Gregory House, vindicate a team of Princeton experts? Or is it the sort of complaint your average healer would shrug off as perfectly normal, no big deal, everyone lives through such things? Most people feel that their aches and pains merit the former, but are grateful to hear the latter. All docs make mistakes. The human mind and body are simply too complex. Our understanding of pathology is far from perfect. The better the doc, the more thoughtful the doc, the fewer the errors. But errors will happen. These errors can be broken down into matters of over-treating or under-treating patients. Unless financially motivated to over-treat, your standard doc will under-treat. Why? Because non-specific healing factors are powerful. The history of medicine has been called the history of the placebo effect. Clinical attention is a potent force. Conversely, that seemingly pat reassurance that your bellyache is not an ulcer, sometimes accompanied by a literal pat on the back, can feel maddeningly dismissive, frustratingly neglectful, and yet absolutely vital. Selective clinical inattention is a hallmark of the field of medicine. The able physician reflexively practices it. Without it, a hospital bed would never be available. The thoughtful doc is constantly doing triage work. What should be attended to? What shouldn't? Should we ring a bell and call attention to this process? Not remotely. The mind is a powerful instrument for change, for healing. It is why the placebo effect is so powerful. It is also why B.F. Skinner was able to develop mythic status, parlaying the simple maxim, ignore it and it will go away. Ironically, Skinner insisted on being called a behaviorist, 
and further insisted that the mind has nothing to do with behavior change. Huh. Among other things, selective inattention is a mind game. Emphasizing the positive with an oppositional child, that would be every child, and not overreacting to problem behaviors is common sense parenting that was practiced centuries before Dr. Spock. The savvy physician does well to keep as low a profile as possible with the process of selectively not attending to certain symptoms or complaints and simply moving on. A seemingly slight point? Hardly. Skinner was right in making the issue of attention the center of his personality theory. Attention is everything. Do we clumsily put a spotlight on this process of selective inattention and effectively diminish its potency? Nope. Granted, I am doing just that here, but my following is so slight that the system will hardly be jiggered. A close relative to selective inattention is the matter of distraction. In, in my practice, it is not uncommon for me to trot out this line. 100 years of research and the best tool for change that psychologists can devise is distraction. Distraction. Get your mind off of it. Redirect. Sounds simple. It might be. It is a proactive form of selective inattention. As a culture and as individuals, we are obsessed with obsessions. We are into things. We have our interests. An abiding interest in all of our lives is sleep. The presence of disruption in our sleep patterns can be a jarring thing. Alas, it commands our attention like little else does. What to do? How to begin to derail a destructive behavior pattern or mindset? An outside person might try some selective inattention. Very insightful. But well before the internet, many realized that, like the physician, we must learn to heal ourselves, be our own physicians. With disordered sleep patterns, we should be and do just that. As noted, sleep disruption can signal an array of infirmity in the body or mind. The body? Get a physical, get it fixed. The mind, trickier to be sure. If it's depression, eh, get, an, get on an SSRI. The sleep disruption will mend in time. If it's anxiety, address the situational stressors. To try and address the sleep issue directly can be a mistake. For the myriad of folks who use Benadryl or Tylenol PM for the occasional night's sleep, fine. I do not wish to pick a fight with you. I'm for what works. My words are meant for the insomniac. You know who you are. Frequently tired, often frustrated, always obsessed. With what? With sleep, of course. How much you got or didn't get last night? What seems to help? What doesn't? Sleep, like eating, is a life-giving force, a natural force. How we go about dealing with it is crucial. The matter of eating dis disorders seems instructive in this context. The treatment of eating disorders has baffled thoughtful clinicians for years. 
as has finding a clinically effective treatment for insomnia. I submit that the very essence of an eating disorder, along with various body image issues and psychosocial issues, is the notion or belief that one can absolutely control the process of eating. Be it starving or vomiting, one is attempting to execute such control. Overeating is certainly a variation on this theme. Of course, on a rational level, one might admit that exercising such control over a natural process is folly. The repeated failure of nearly all diet plans is Exhibit A. The ongoing problems with many ED programs exhibit B. What about sleeping? What about insomnia? What about chronic insomnia? What about the use of sleep aids? I submit that such use, be it Ambien, Lunesta, Halcyon, or Trazodone, is an effort to exercise a control over a natural process, an effort that is destined to fail. Many of us know the drill. Most aids work for a time, but then there is that thorny issue of habituation, not to mention dependency. More is needed to get the same effect. And good luck ever getting off them. The rebound can produce a state of such frank sleeplessness that renders the initial sleep concerns child's play. Are you the person who can take uh, 0.5 milligram Xanax for a decent night's sleep for a period of 25 years? Do two glasses of wine with Colbert or Trevor Noah? Do the job? Fine. Do it. No problem. This treatment is for more severe cases. Some docs will turn to the big guns, the major tranquilizers, the Seroquils, to do the job. The use of antipsychotic meds can seize control of that delicate sleep process, Blotto City, but at what cost? Sleep is not an end in itself. We don't live to sleep. Research shows that we can perform our life tasks, chores and challenges, up to and beyond reasonable standards without that pristine seven or eight hours of sleep. Sleep will catch up as need be. It will happen when it happens. But our minds and bodies remain powerful conduits for all sorts of bad habits and unhelpful thoughts, myths and legends surrounding our sleep cycles. We can get instantly and deeply obsessive regarding matters of sleep. What to do? Beyond the basic and obvious things, such as attempting to live a balanced life of work and play, managing stress and anger reasonably well, having some physical activity, some sex, avoiding caffeine in the evening. How about some selective inattention? How about not talking about your sleeping problem? How about not assuming that you should get a good night's sleep? How about not thinking that you can or should be able to control your sleep cycle? How about not taking a doomsday approach to the idea of sleeplessness? How about selectively not attending to the issue of sleep? Are we giving up on the notion of getting a good night's sleep? No. 
Are we giving up on the process of thinking about getting a good night's sleep? Yes. Is this a significant distinction? Absolutely. As tricky as the selective inattention process is, with the able physician managing our physical symptoms, exercising selective inattention on ourselves on this most intimate of issues is some two-step, but doable. The key dynamic in this process is the acknowledgement that you will lie in bed for a period of time and that your body will obtain the needed rest to do your thing during the day. Whether you fall asleep or not is not the crucial issue. When you fall asleep and how much you sleep is not the issue. Having a clock in sight is not particularly helpful in this process. Beyond that, I would recommend staying in your comfort zone. Do you like to read in bed? Fine, do it. Do you like to watch TV in bed? Fine, do it. This is not an exhaustive search for what is compatible with sleep versus what amounts to fighting sleep. The intention of this strategy is to eliminate any semblance of a battle with sleep, to eliminate any semblance of trying to control sleep, to even eliminate many of the direct efforts to influence sleep. Remember, sleep is a natural process. The ultimate success of such a plan mostly relies on the extent to which you can turn off your mind or train yourself to quit obsessing about sleep and gain some degree of serenity as you lie prone and learn to relax and accept this resting state, sleeping or near sleeping. Distraction can be a useful tool at this time as one redirects away from concerns about it being night and one is awake. Meditation or some positive self-statements can be useful. Most important is the belief that one is resting calmly and learning to master the active or residual frustration one might continue to feel about the persistent waking state. An acceptance of this resting wakeful state is, in my clinical and personal opinion, a fair bridge and invitation to the world of sleep. Selective inattention to matters of sleep might be our strongest calling card to that slumbering state. Good night.